morning, LifeGate. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. It's 2017. I see how everybody is excited. That's really great. That's really awesome. Welcome to LifeGate this morning. We're really excited you guys are here. Uh, what's really awesome is actually on January 3rd marks one year that my wife and I were brought on staff here at LifeGate Church, and we are so excited. We're honored and blessed just to be a part of the staff here, the, the church family, the community that is here at LifeGate. Um, about two months or so ago, Chad asked me if uh, I would speak on worship, which makes a lot of sense since I'm the worship pastor. Um, so as he asked me to do that, I'd be able to write a lot of things down on what I wanted to share. And uh, then he dove into the series, and I quickly realized that Chad did his homework, and I started crossing thing after thing after thing off my list. But it's all right. There was still a couple of things that are left on there, um, and I'm going to dive into those a little bit today. Before I do that, I just wanted to tell a little bit about my personal journey with worship. Uh, as far as long ago as I can remember, my family, uh, first of all, my parents were first-generation Christians, which were, was awesome. I was really blessed. Uh, to be raised in a Christian home. Um, but one of my earliest worship memories was when my dad was, uh, when I was a kid, my dad was a vocalist at the church that we went to. And so he went on stage and he was like doing, you know, old school, like Christian, you know, whatever that we don't listen to very much anymore. But it was awesome for the time. And, uh, so he was started rehearsing and then uh, I would walk in the room and he would mess up a line. And I, like four-year-old me was like, that is not how it goes. And I would, like, say what it was, and I did, like, my little, you know, like, plastic microphone drop, you know, right there in the room and uh, showed him how it was going. The next uh, thing I was, uh, memory with worship was, when I was a kid, we went to a church that had uh, met at a church, I mean, met at a school, a church, met at a school, and uh, we, uh, there was an orchestra pit down there, and all the kids would come down front, and we would, like, dance and like, the old school, you know, like, hold hands and do this type thing, and uh, I would do that. And uh, I would do that, and then we'd, like, lift our hands in exuberant worship. It was really awesome. And then when I was 10, I started my first uh, worship group called JoJo J-Rap. That's right. Y'all know you've heard of it. Um, we wrote a whole two songs, and uh, we set our parents' living room on fire, let me just tell you. Um, but we had our creative differences, and Saved by the Bell came on, and that was the end of the group. Uh, so... But after that, uh, when I was 13, I picked up the guitar, and uh, I was able to start leading worship for small groups at our church, for uh, the youth group, for uh, the young adults, for our Sunday morning team, and I've been able to lead worship uh, across the country, and it's been a really awesome journey. And uh, so I'm going to dive in here today, and uh, the title of the message today is Worship uh, is Our Identity. Uh, before I do that, I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to uh, just dive right in. So God, I just ask, Lord, that you just come into this place and that you have your way today. Lord God, anything that is from you, Lord God, I ask that you will just allow it to penetrate our hearts, Lord God, that you allow it to change us. And Lord God, anything that is not from you, Lord God, just let it fall away. Just let it fall away right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so worship is our identity. Uh, I'm going to start with the story of Moses. Uh, what I've told my team, I've taught with our worship team a lot, and I like kind of paraphrase a lot. So it's the story according to Josh. So don't get offended. It's, it's biblical, but I mean, if you need to feel, feel like the exact version of it, you can go research it in the Bible. 
So uh, Moses, Moses was born into captivity. The Hebrew people at that time were in bondage. They were in slavery uh, to the Egyptians. And so around the time that Moses was born, uh, Pharaoh had heard a prophecy from the Hebrew people that there was going to be a child that was going to set them free from slavery. So being the level-headed man that he was, he decided to go and kill every male child two years old and under, which seems like a very logical thing to do. Um, So he just reigned terror over the entire Hebrew people. And uh, Moses' mother, being resourceful and awesome, placed him in a basket and put him in the river. So how many, like, saw Prince of Egypt, the animated... Yes. See, first service didn't see that, so I'm glad you guys have a reference. I'm letting you know right now that I I had a panic attack at seven years old when that movie came out, and like this baby was going down the river, and like alligators are chomping at it, and like oars are smacking it, and I'm like, this dude is going to get killed in the first two minutes of the movie, and then we have nothing. Um, but anyways, he made it. So, woohoo, he made it. Uh, he made it to Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh's daughter uh, picked him up from the river, and he was raised as a prince of Egypt, hence the name of the movie. Um, but the point, that brings me to my first point, which is that we are sons, not servants. We are kings, not slaves. You see, Moses was born a servant, but he was raised as a king. See, the reason that is significant is because Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses had access to the king's room when he came back to tell him about that his people needed to go. See, that wouldn't happen if he was just a slave. Like, God can use anybody. I'm not trying to say God couldn't use anybody. But God raised him as a king. He gave him training as a king to be able to seek out Pharaoh in his place, to have access there that other people may not have had. He was able to write down things that as a worker in the field where he was just doing, uh, creating blocks that he might not have been able to do because he was a king. God sets us apart to be kings, not slaves. He sets us apart to be sons, not servants. Before any of the women freak out about sons, not servants, let me just say, for eternity, men are known as the bride of Christ. And so for this illustration, we're going to do sons, not servants. Hope everybody's okay with that. We're just going to move along, Okay. So sons, not servants. All right, Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. John 15 says, I no longer call you slaves, because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. You see, slaves and servants, they get, a plan, they get a task. They get a task and they just go about doing it. But sons and kings and heirs with God, they get a plan from the Father. And they need to execute the plan. See, when Jesus left, he said, Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, as when we go to our jobs, we can go to our jobs and we can execute a task. We can go, we can get paid, and we're okay with that. We are okay with just going and getting a task. But see, that's what religion does. Religion tells you to complete a task. A relationship with Jesus tells you, God, what is your plan? Right? You guys tracking with me there? Awesome. It reminds me of this story of this artist. 
There was this artist who, uh, he was a well-known artist, and he painted a lot of landscape. Like, he did mountains and rivers and valleys and, like, Thomas Kincaid type stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was really good. He was in, like, a gallery in downtown Fort Worth, like, all this stuff. Like, he was that good. And so one day, he had a buddy of his come, and he was like, hey, man, I'm really thinking about starting to paint some portraits of people. And he's like, man, that sounds awesome. You're a really good artist. That should work out really nice. He's like, will you come and be a model for me? He's like, yeah, man, no problem. So he comes in, and he starts painting his friend. His friend is sitting there just still, you know, because you can't move when they're trying to paint your portrait. And so he's painting, and then he finishes, and he's like, hey, man, come and look at it. So the buddy's like, all right. And he comes, and just starts making his face. And like that. Oh. He's like, man, you're, you're awesome. Like, you're awesome. Uh, but this, this is, this is not good. I'm, I'm just saying, like, y'all, it makes me, like, feel sad inside, you know? Because art is supposed to, you know, give you an emotion. It's like, that's, that just makes me sad. And he's like, you're great, man. You're really great, but this is bad. And so how often do we, as Christians, say, man, God, you're awesome. But this creation, that's not good. You see, we, we oftentimes do that. See, I was raised in church. I was raised in church, and I was told my entire life it was like, God, I am a terrible person. I'm sitting here, and I'm worshiping, and I make the worship face, the in-worship face, which is like, and like you just call out to God, you're like, yes, Jesus, but that's your hard worship face. I know because I do it. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I look at any of y'all's faces while you worship, but I know that's my face. Um, we do that. We're like, God, I am so bad. I am terrible. I am awful. But you're awesome. How do you know? How many of you know that you cannot say, hey, artist, you're great, but your art sucks. Can I say sucks in church, Chad? Is that all right? Awesome. Gotcha. All right, you can't do it. You can't talk to a creator and say, hey, your creation is great, but the thing you created is terrible. It contradicts itself. It immediately contradicts itself. You see, right now, from now into the past and from now into the future, God is already at his maximum bigness, if that's a good word. My wife's an English teacher. She might correct me later. It's okay. He's at his maximum bigness, his maximum awesomeness. He does not need us to bring ourselves down so he can be elevated. Because the Bible says that we were made in his image, and if we are made in his image, we are made to be here. We're not made to be here so he can get up. God is not on an ego trip. He doesn't need us to bring ourselves down so he can be lifted up. But we do that because, we're, we're like I said, I was raised in church, so I began to get this lens. I began to believe this lie, this, this image that I created for myself. John Maxwell says that you are not what you think you are. You are not what others think you are. You become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. I'm going to say that one more time. You are not what you think you are. You are not what others think you are. You become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. See, for a lot of us, that's our spouse. For a lot of us, that's a boss, a friend. But let's say that's God, right? So you become what you think God thinks you are. That's a pretty cool thing, right? 
It's a pretty cool thing that we can become what we think God thinks we are. But a lot of us, we, think we have this image of God in our mind. We have this image of God that's, he's just this big guy sitting up in the sky just waiting for us to get out of line, right? Like he's sitting there and he's like, don't you do that. And he's going to whip us back in. A lot of us have this vision of God where he's just this distant guy that we just say some words to and hope that he answers, right? We have this vision of God that's just completely distorted of what he really is. And we've accepted that to be our reality. You see, but when you believe a lie about who God is, it affects your relationship with him. And then you think and who you think you should become. See, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, God is saying, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. See, because if we believe that God is this strict guy just sitting in the sky, but we also believe that we are made in his image, then we are allowing ourselves to be made into this image of God that we have put in this box that says, God, you're not going to be there, or God, you're just waiting for me to screw up, or any other thing that we have place upon God. You see, and oftentimes we have this view of God that comes from our fathers, Oftentimes, we ascribe these uh, characteristics of God that we have from our fathers. See, for me personally, when I grew up, I had a phenomenal dad. My dad was awesome. He loved me. He cared about me. We wrestled. We played sports. We did all this stuff. But a flaw that I had with my father on a personal level was I felt like he overpromised but underdelivered. I also felt like my dad loved my siblings more than he loved me. Now, those things weren't true, but it was a lie that I believed. And because of that, I started ascribing that to God. You see, because I was raised in church, and I was told over and over, Josh, you're going to lead worship. You're going to lead worship. You're going to do amazing things for God. But because I had that distorted image of who I thought God was, I thought that God was over-promising, but he was going to under-deliver. So I began to think, oh, that's amazing, God. Thank you so much. But, yeah, that's probably probably not going to happen, but I appreciate you thinking about me. Or I began to think, man, other people might do it because you might love them more. You might love the way they worship more. I began to let these lies become fear in my life because that's where all lies are birthed out of is a fear. I had this fear that I wasn't good enough. I had this fear that God was going to choose someone else other than me. I had this fear that he was going to promise me the world and just give me nothing because that's the relationship that I had. He's like, but the, but the truth is, it's like I said, there is, there, that was all based out of a lie. But the truth is that God is love. How many here know that Satan cannot create, he can only distort what God creates. And so if God is love, then Satan is, is what? Is fear. He can only distort what God made, so he has to bring fear. His truth is found in fear. 1 John 4, 8 through 10 says, God is love. God showed us how he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. 
now that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Further on down in that chapter, in verse 18, it says, such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. So see, this, we need you to take this distorted image that you have of God, the place on whether it was by lies or whether it was by father or whether it's by religion, that has placed this distorted view of who God is and realize that God is love. That any lie that you think uh, about God, it's probably taking you further away from him. Why? Because God is love and fear is trying to take you away from love every single time. Fear will constantly take you away from love. But the truth is God is love. And it says over and over and over who you are in that. See, because if we are trying to be made in his image, if we are trying to make ourselves like this image that we've lied in, we are not only believing a lie about God, we've now distorted our own image of ourselves. Because like we said earlier, you are made to be a son, not a servant. You are made to be a king, not a slave. And so if you're believing these things today, can I just tell you that God has promises, he has truths about you that he's just listed over and over. We're going to take off this lens of these lies that we've allowed ourselves to believe that are based out of fear. See, I'm just going to start reading these off. There's literally pages of these in the New Testament. It says, you are a child of God. You are a friend of Jesus. You have been justified and redeemed. Your old self was crucified with Christ, and you are no longer a slave to sin. You will not be condemned by God. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. You are a child of God, and you are a fellow heir in Christ. You have been accepted by Christ. You have been called to be a saint. In Jesus Christ, you have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit spirit. You are joined with the Lord and you are one spirit with him. God leads you in the triumph and the knowledge of Christ. That's just like 10. Like there is literally from Genesis to Revelation, God is sitting here telling you how awesome you are, but we have religion and we have fear that has allowed us to bring ourselves down here when God says, no, you are this. Can I tell you this morning that these blinders have to come off? We're talking about worship here today, and for us to truly worship God in spirit and truth, for us to say, God, will you come? God, will you make me in your image? We have to first remove this false image that we put God in. We put God in this box that he does not belong in, and by doing that, we put ourselves in a box that we do not belong in. You guys tracking with me this morning? Awesome. My last, my last point is Satan, he knows your name, and he calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, and he calls you by your name. Can I say that one more time? Satan knows your name and calls you by your sin. God knows your sin and calls you by your name. It's the same thing that we've been talking about all morning. It's this fear. It's we've allowed these fears, we've allowed these mistakes, we've allowed these regrets to define who we are. And the thing is, is because we let someone call us by that. We let someone call us by our fear and say, you know what, I'm not worthy enough. We let religion tell us, no, God, I'm terrible. 
because we let these fears, we let Satan call us by our sins. But God is sitting here telling you, you are son, you are redeemed, you are set free. That's who God calls you this morning. See, God called a lot of people by name. He changed people's name from Abram to Abraham. Amen, father of many, because why? He called him Abraham before he even had a son. He said, you will be the father of many. The world called him Abram, and God called him Abraham. And what happened? His descendants outnumbered the stars. Because Abram allowed God to call him by name and not his truth, not his reality, not his sin. It was the same with Jacob. Jacob was called liar, but he contended with God. Israel means God contended. So he had an angel come down, and he wrestled with him. And he said, I will not allow my past, I will not allow my sin, I will not allow my circumstances to call me my name. I will wrestle with an angel if I have to, to get God to call me by what his identity is for me, right? God did it over and over. He did it with Saul. He did it with Simon. Saul, he renamed Paul, which means humbled, which is accurate. Um, And then Simon, he called Peter. The next story I'm going to tell is about the prodigal son. We've used that a lot here at LifeGate. It's one of my favorite stories. I love it. Over and over in my life, I've used, I've identified with every part of it. I've identified with the older brother. I've identified with uh, this father. I've identified with the lost son. Um, so what happened, for those of you who don't know the story, what happened is there was a son who really wanted his inheritance right now. His dad was loaded, and so he was like, Dad, I want my stuff right now. I'm just letting you guys know right now that I have a daughter, and if she came up to me right now and said, Dad, I want half of everything, I'd be like, I'm sorry. I don't don't have it. Like, but luckily, he he had a father who was like, all right, if that's what you want, then you can have it. And so he left. He left, and he partied, and he did the drinking, the gambling, you know, all the, you know, seven deadly sins, that kind of stuff. Like, he did terrible things. And so, at the end of it, his money ran out. Everything that he wanted ran out. And so, while he was out, he was starving. His clothes were torn. He even lost the sandals off of his feet. And he was eating slop with pigs when he decided, you know what? My dad's servants even get paid. I mean, they even eat better than this. So, he started on his way home, thinking, Man, I'll just, I'll just apologize to my dad, and everything will be all right. Like, at least let me work for him. Maybe I can work back what I took from him, you know? And if there was ever a time where a God, where a father could sit back and be like, well, 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 aren't we Mr. Party Pants? Like, but he didn't. From a long way off, he saw his son, and he ran out. He threw a robe on him. He gave him the sandals off his feet, and he took the ring off his hand and put it on his son. The significance of the ring on his son was in Jewish custom, anybody could write anybody can write anything on a piece of paper, and they can put it up in the town square, and it, it's just a piece of paper. But it took the signet on the ring for it to be a law or for it to be what the town would have to do. 
And so without anything, without saying, did you learn your lesson? Are you sure you'll never do that again? He throws the ring on him because why? Because he's a son. He's not a servant. He didn't even wait to hear his son's apology. He didn't look at his son and see the sin over and over that he knew he committed. He saw this. Can I get a little clap for that? My daughter wanted to know that we clapped for her. I showed that in the first service. She's like, did they clap for it, Daddy? I was like, they, a little. Um, but see, that's what he saw. When his son was coming down the road in rags, he was beaten. He had nothing. He saw that. He saw a child that loved him. Because that's what God has for us. That's the image that God has created us in. He's created us as sons and as daughters to be made in his image, to be made full and holy before him, not sons that have to worry about, man, I messed up so bad. There is no way I can be made in the image of my father. I'm here to tell you today that that image that we have of ourselves and that image that we have of God is not reality. That God is a beautiful and amazing father. That when my daughter stands in front of me and she, like, she broke something and she's like, I don't know, daddy. I don't know what happened. Do you think I look at her and I'm like, you are a liar. <laughs> I could, but I don't. I see my little girl that I love and that I would do anything for that I would die in a second for. I would jump in front of a car, a bullet, whatever you want to say for her. And I am an imperfect man. I'm an imperfect father. We have a perfect father who doesn't care about your mistakes. He doesn't care about your sins. He doesn't even care about your fear. He is perfect love, and he is ready to take your fear and turn it into love. He's ready to take your mistakes and turn them into a plan for your life and to have shared plans with you.